Hi everybody, I'm an alcoholic. My name is Sharon. And um, thank you for inviting me here to Tone Paw. It's my first time here. I appreciate it a lot. Um, this is my first time speaking this length of uh, time. I've done short 10-minute, 15-minute uh, meetings and treatment centers, but this is my first time, so hopefully you'll bear with me and <laughs> hopefully I can remember what it was like, yes. Um, I heard this summer when I went to California where I got sober, my sobriety date is October 21st, 2010, and um, I went back to California in July and I got to go to a roundup in the Tatchby Mountains, which was really beautiful, and I heard a spiritual speaker speak on Sunday, and um, she had said... um, if you have something happen in your life and you think that God had something to do with it to, to mark that spot, you know, and so that you can go back into that window of time and, and thank him for the blessing. And, um, you know, I've just had so many of those things happen to me since I've been in recovery that, um, you know, I never really thought of it that way. But um, as I think back now, um, I think God was always with me. I come from a large family, um, one of 11 siblings. There are eight daughters and three sons. And um, this is a family disease in my family. My father is an alcoholic, and his father was an alcoholic. And um, out of the 11 siblings, there's probably a few more that need to be in recovery. <laughs> but uh, I'm trying to be the, the example in our family and lead by example. Um, my mother and father met here in Arizona in 1956 I believe and got married Uh, my father was in the military I think at that time I'm not sure if that was the Korean War but I know he did serve there and uh seemed like he had his four years there, and during that time, each time he came back to visit, my mom would get pregnant and have another baby. <laughs> I was the third of the first seven daughters born, and um, I think, you know, as far back as I can remember, um, there was always the presence of alcohol in a, in a young age. I can remember it in our family, and... Um, I'm sorry. I'm just a little bit nervous. <laughs> I know it's a small group here. Um, as far back as I can remember, uh, there was always alcohol present in our home. And uh, my the, the first four of the seven sisters that were born here were born first from my mother and father. I was number three. And um, my mother had seven children seven daughters from 1957 through 1965. And uh, we moved to California in 1963, and my mother had uh, three more daughters. So the first four were born here in Arizona. I don't have really much memory of Arizona at all. I do have the memories from California, though. And uh, my my earliest memories were... um, in a small house that we lived in with a lot of kids. And I can remember there was always screaming and yelling going on in our house. 
And one of my, I, I remember when I did my fourth step, you know, uh, I, w I was going to a workshop at the time, and uh, the way that he told us to help us do the fourth step, because I, I was very confused about how to do it. I know the book lays it out, and he laid it out for us too, and just kind of to make it easy, he said, go back to your first memory uh, that you have, good or bad, you know, and uh, just go from there. It's kind of like a lifeline, that dash, you know, in the, in the step we admitted we're powerless over alcohol. is like the dash on the gravestone, your, your life. So I, I went back, and my first memory was, you know, just laying down in the hallway. And back then they had those doors that had the, uh, the vent on it, had little holes in it. And I remember laying on the floor and kind of looking through this vent and, and, and hearing a lot of yelling, screaming, and my dad was usually chasing my mom around the house. You know, there was a lot of uh, violence in our home, and that continued on. And um, I think it was about 1968, and I only know this because of my dad now, but in 1968, my dad was arrested, and uh, he was arrested for drunk driving. He had... Uh, gotten on the highway up in Northern California in a little town called Santa Cruz and he was on his way back from drinking that night and somebody cut him off on the freeway and he uh, followed this guy home to his house and and beat him up, you know, pretty much got arrested for attempt to murder him with his feet, you know, kicking the man. He found himself in jail the next day and he had, you know, he had eight children. So uh, he... Uh, he came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I know this today. I didn't know this then. I was nine years old. Uh, he came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and he did get sober. My dad, I'm happy to report that uh, he has 44 years of sobriety. Um, this December, he'll have 45 years of sobriety. However, with eight children, he had to go back to work. You know, he had to get a job quickly and get back to work. And um, so he did... From what he's told me, he stayed in Alcoholics Anonymous for about a year and was very active in the program. And um, he actually got sober with my mom's uncle and his brother in, Calif in California also as well. And um, so there was still the behavior, and I've learned this now that I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous, that even though you take the alcohol away or the substance away, you still have the problem that's between your ears, you know, and it's, it's us, we're the problem. And so because he didn't have that staying power and staying in the program, um, he had the insanity or what we call a non-treated alcoholic, a non-recovered alcoholic, not working the steps, not in the program. So there was still a lot of violence in our home. And, um, you know, he, he did the best that he could, and so did my mom. He worked hard. He worked hard. He sent us girls to Catholic school, raised Catholic. Um, and on the outside, that's what our house looked like. It looked like a nice little Catholic home with eight kids inside. We went to church every Sunday, and, uh, you know, the insanity set in when the doors closed, you know, at, at night. We didn't know who was going to walk through the door, you know, um, whether it was Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde. Even though my father had quit drinking, it was still, the insanity, the behavior was still there. So uh, they divorced in 1974. I think I was about 13 years old, almost 14 years old. And uh, my parents were in the process of, of 
moving our family from Simi Valley, California to Urington, Nevada, which was a very small town. If anyone's familiar with that, it's about an hour out of Reno, Nevada. So with that big of a family, he had to take, uh, take two trips, you know, and what he did was he rented a big truck and he took me and one of my sisters up to Urington, Nevada with half of our belongings in the big truck. And, um, I remember that night very, very well. Um, we, he got some young men in the town. It was a small town, really small town. And he got some of the young men in town to come up to the house and help us unpack the stuff. And, um, that night after they went home, I could hear my dad fighting on the phone all night long with my mother. I just heard, all night long, I just heard it. And the next morning, he got up and got his briefcase and went out the door and got in the truck. And he was going back down to Simi Valley, California to get my mom and the rest of the stuff. And my mom my sister were going to follow in the cars. And he left, and my mother called us. And my older sister took the phone call, and she said, I'm leaving your father um, I've wired money to Reno, Nevada. You're going to have to get a, get a ride there and uh, get the money, and you'll be flying back down to California. What I didn't know is that my dad in the briefcase had taken a gun with him because that insanity was still there. You know, he was a non-treated alcoholic. And um, so me and my sister went and stayed at the uh, Reno airport. We, we did get a ride there. Um, we didn't get there in time to get the money, so we didn't get to stay in the hotel that was supposed to be provided for us. We slept in the airport parking lot. Um, I piggyback a little bit. Uh, that's kind of when I found alcohol, was about that age, about 13. It was before they got divorced, and I, I kind of, with my older sisters, because my dad was so strict, he wouldn't let my older sisters go out on dates unless, or even with their friends, unless they, she took younger sisters with her. He figured they wouldn't get in trouble if they took the younger sisters. Well, that's where I had my first introduction to alcohol, and back then it was a, a joint, you know, and I smoked with my sisters, and um, that was my first introduction, and I, you know, went to parties and, and whatnot, and, um, and then, like I say, my parents got divorced. I went, ended up back down in California, and... Uh, my mother had taken all of my sisters and put us at our grandmother's house, except for the oldest one. She was 18, so she got out. She escaped the madness. And after that uh, summer, we stayed there for a couple months in, in Ontario with my mother's brother. And um, my mom married uh, my dad's best friend from us kids growing up in Simi Valley. <laughs> I, I was against that. You know, I think some of my sisters were too. And, and as well in a lot of divorces, people, you know, the kids aren't really happy about the step-parent and whatnot. Well, he turned out to uh, not be too good of a, of a fellow either. He, uh, he later turned out to uh, molest a couple of my sisters. And... Uh, <laughs> Just roughness, you know, uh, for a young girl at that age, you know, from a divorced family, still in, in school, and then we've got the stepdad. Um, I pretty much was, didn't have any uh, rules or regulations. I went on the weekends. I lived in Sunland Tahunga at that time. That was uh, down in the San Fernando Valley area. And um, that was the one year I did get to go to a, Catholic, or a non-Catholic school. 
in, in the 11th grade. And um, I'd get money on the weekends, I'd take a bus, I'd go back to Simi Valley, I'd party with my friends all weekend, get back on the bus, and go back and, and go to school. In 12th grade, I went to Catholic school, graduated from high school, and... Um, I was 17 when I graduated from high school because I went to school early. Now, I had my first DUI when I was 16. Yeah. In 1976. And I was driving my stepdad's car. It was a 1967 Bonneville. And uh, I think that car saved my life. I had drove it to Simi Valley and partied with some friends. And I think a couple other pills went down with the Budweiser. And I was driving home. And um, I was on familiar streets, pretty much. I knew my way home, you know, from valley to valley. And I was driving down the street, and there was a dead end at the end of the street. And to avoid the dead end, I ended up hitting four parked cars in this 67 Bonneville. And I remember my stepdad coming over to the house. I remember I got arrested, and I remember I had handcuffs in my, um, you know, behind me. And um, my stepdad showed up, and this was in 1976. I think they called it a DUI then or 502, something like that, a 502. And so I, I remember, you know, clearly all this, and, you know, the whole front end of the, of the Bonneville was just gone. I mean, those are tanks. They're big, huge, <laughs> thick cars, and the whole front end was gone. And there was all these Budweiser cans on the floor. But I remember the, uh, there was some kind of conversation my stepdad had with the police officers, and I didn't go to jail that night, and I did not get, uh, I did not have any repercussions. I never went to court for that. I have no idea what happened, but I do have the actual ticket, you know, and I found it just recently because we're moving again and we're going through a bunch of boxes. And on that ticket where it says un under the influence, it, the box was checked no. I was clearly well under the influence, you know, but the box was checked no. So back in the 70s, I don't know if he paid him money or whatever he did, but I didn't, I didn't have to deal with it. So, of course, I got my next one when I was 19, and um, there I was back in Simi Valley partying with my friends, driving on the wrong side of the road. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning, a summer night, and um, um, they pulled me over and took me to the Simi Valley Police Station, and... Back about that time, it was only a couple of years later, but they, they, the deal was that they were going to take me to Ventura County Jail. And uh, the police officers in Simi Valley didn't feel like, I guess, didn't feel like I would survive the night in Ventura County Jail. Uh, Ventura County, it was near the Oxnard area, and it was prevalent for Hispanics, and I was a very very small, and I was in my bathing suit, too, you know, in my, in my shorts and bathing suit. And so they just didn't. They said, is there anyone that could come pick you up? I said, well, I'll call my mom and my stepdad, you know. Well, I called them. Well, you know, they already washed the first DUI under the, under the bed. So my mom says, you've made your bed. You're going to lay in it. You know, you get out of there yourself. So I called a girlfriend, and her, her mom came and got me uh, from the jailhouse, took me home, and they kept my, she, gave, she had my keys, so my car stayed there. And I did have to pay for that one. I did have to go to court for that one. I did have to pay. But they didn't send me to any Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. Um, I had to go to an alcohol classes. I had to pay for it. I think it cost me $750 for that DUI then. And uh, cost me for the alcohol classes. And then my insurance, of course, went up in that. Now, at 19 years old, I knew I'd had a problem. You know, I knew... 
from 13 on, I had done that partying and, you know, got myself into some serious uh, times where I'm sure we've all been through them, where you think, how did I make it through that night? You know, I guess this is where I get to talk about a few of them, you know, but I think... um, Thinking back on it now, I wish that I had gotten to some AA meetings. I wish they had. I wish the judge had sent me to some AA meetings. But as it was, I did the geographical move after that. From Simi Valley, I thought, I'll move. I, uh, I was dating a Vietnam vet at the time. And, uh, you know, I blamed him for a lot of my drinking. I was always doing that, blaming my dad for my drinking, blaming my life for my drinking, blaming him for my drinking, you know, my friends, my whatever, but I decided to do the geographical move, and I knew one person up in the Antelope Valley, which is about an hour north of L.A., and I decided I'm going to go up there, and everything's going to be okay. I didn't know, none of my family was there. I got a job within a few weeks, and I started working as a waitress in a hotel, restaurant, and bar, the best western Antelope Valley in. And um, worked with some girls, and we had, we had, you know, just, I was living in my own place by that time. It was a tiny little house I paid $75 a month rent for. <laughs> it was a cinder block, a little cinder block place on 148th and East Avenue G, which is kind of like Tonopah. <laughs> if you go to picture it, it was this little brick house, and there was, you know, a sheriff stationed 20 miles down the road. So... That's where I lived, and uh, I worked, and, you know, I paid that fine off. I paid it uh, weekly, I think, $25 a week I saved out of my check, and so I paid it off. And I was uh, almost 20, and I worked with a real nice woman, and her name was Wanda, and she was older than me. She worked in the dining room, and I worked in the coffee shop, and I started going out with these girls. We started going out after work, and we'd go to this bar called Maxton's, and we liked that bar because it was all female bartenders, and we didn't, get any, we didn't want to get bothered by anyone. We wanted to go after work, and we wanted to drink and make, make our steaks or whatever. It was. You could cook food on the side, and we wanted to do that. We had a good time, and us girls, you know, we were a tight little group, and this, this gal, Wanda, she used to tell me, she goes, you know, you remind me a lot of myself when I was younger. I said, really? You know, and we just got along really well, you know. And after I knew her for almost about a year, and I, she told me one night, she says, uh, she never really talked about her children, you know. She never really talked about her life too much. And one night uh, she said, uh, I have two sons and a daughter. You know, she says, you're going to marry my older son. And he's going to love you for the rest of your life. You know, okay. (laughs) So uh, I'll go fast forward. The greatest gift in my sobriety so far. And, you know, the promises, they are coming true slowly, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. But the greatest gift in my sobriety has been my husband, my husband Bill, who's sitting over here, who joined us uh, two days before my second year birthday last year, October 19th, 2012. And uh, I did meet Bill in 1980. And I was 21 years, 20 years old. And I think that we thought we were going to save each other's lives. 
because his mother was alcoholic, my father was alcoholic, we had this similar background, and, you know, we got married, we were going to have kids, and everything was going to be, get the little house, and, you know, kids, work, job, everything's going to be good, and, and we did, we got married, and I thought, you know, on my wedding day, I want to remember my wedding day, so I'm not going to drink on my wedding day. <laughs> I'm not going to drink on my wedding day. And, and as it turned out, my dad, uh, everybody puts in money. You know, my mom got the band. My dad paid for the booze <laughs> at the wedding. And because I worked at the hotel, I had bartenders. We had bartenders there. And, you know, it was, it was a real fun time. We, we had quite a bit of booze there and a, a full bar. And I decided I wasn't going to drink, and I didn't. You know, I, I, they had the little cups, and we did the toast, and there was a little champagne of mine. I put it up to my mouth, just tasted it, and put it back down. And I, I did very well at the wedding. Well, there was, at the end of the wedding, at the end of the night, there was, I guess, the refrigerator had quite a few bottles of champagne still left from the wedding. And my glorious husband, who decided to drink at the wedding, <laughs> who had a really good time, decided he was going to take those bottles of champagne home with us. And that was another story, too, was he drove us home, and I didn't think he really was that drunk that night. I really didn't. But looking back on it now, he was, because he ran through two or three red lights down Sierra Highway taking me home in this car. (laughs) And uh, we got home, and there was a lot of people staying at our house, lots of relatives, so we played past the champagne bottle, pretty much. And um, that was all I remember. You know, my sister came in the room the next morning and said, you got to take the, the rental cars back, you know. And we were on our way up to Carmel for our honeymoon, and we were hungover all the way up there. We were so hungover all the way up there. We got up there and had these nice nice little cottage, because I worked for the Best Western Inn, and they gave us a discount. And here we are, you know, making a fire, and we're just hungover as can be. And it's our honeymoon, you know. <laughs> that's, that's just how we start off. So we had, our, uh, we had our children. We had our first son in 1983. Um, we named him after my brother, my one brother of the first group of kids, the first group of eight, seven girls and one brother. We adopted him when he was three in 1967. Or, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not sure on the date exactly, but we adopted him when he was three, and um, he went into the military and he passed away when he was 19 in 1983. And I, I believe if we really look back on it, it was probably related to alcohol. You know, he wanted to come to our wedding in 1982. We got married. He wanted to come to our wedding. He showed up at our house in Lancaster, California, and he was all dressed in his military clothes. And he said, I'm going to get the leave. I'm going to get time off, and I'm going to come to your wedding in November. And apparently his superior didn't let him off and didn't give him the time, and he got really upset and got really drunk on the weekend with all of his army buddies, or, yeah, army buddies, and he proceeded to beat up his his superior officer and put him in the hospital. They court-martialed my brother, and it was back in Fort Bragg, Kentucky, and for part of his punishment, they had him walk around the barracks in the snow. He got lower low bar pneumonia and was real sick, and he got taken into the infirmary, infirmary, and it was misdiagnosed as just cold. He was sent back to his barracks, and it was a weekend, and everybody left on the weekends to go out. And uh, he was left there and found Monday morning. He was found unconscious and had 107 
degree temperature and he never came back. So he passed away uh, right around the end of February of 1983 and I, I got pregnant. So I named our first son after my brother and he was a joy in our life. I can say that, you know, looking back on things that there, it wasn't all bad, you know. I, I'm, we're moving again, like I say, I'm moving for the third time since I've gotten sober in, in October of 2010. And it's been like part of the cleansing process, you know, that we all go through, doing our steps, doing the fourth step where we do that whole inventory. This has been part of that, you know, because each time we've moved, we've had to go farther and deeper into boxes and get rid of, the, you know, get rid of the stuff from the past. And, you know, what we've been looking at lately was a lot of pictures, you know, of, of the last pretty much 30 years from from 1980 when I met him we got married in 82 kids in 83 another kid in 88 uh you know we look back on all those times and you know we I can see the progressiveness of the disease and I was looking at those pictures today and there wasn't a birthday a Christmas an Easter a graduation a catechism first communion of my sons um there wasn't one particular holiday where I didn't have a beer in my hand or my husband didn't have a beer in his hand and you know it it's it's not surprising me now there was like I say a lot of good pictures but the stack of pictures with the beers and it is quite a bit more and uh, so uh, so my my younger my younger son was born in 1989 and uh, continued to work and tried the controlled drinking you know I'm going to just drink on the weekends I'm going to drink just a little bit on the weeknights that I have to work and and that seemed to work you know as well as it did you know I mean I always had my limit I had my limit I'd say I'm going to drink 10 beers and that's my limit and sometimes I'd go over and I paid for it alcohol made me really sick it, it made me sick it take took me sometimes two or three days to recuperate where I wasn't the type that could get up in the morning and and drink hard alcohol but it didn't take but a few days to recuperate where I was back into that binge drinking again. And uh, in, uh, in 1996, I worked as a waitress for like 13 years, and then I went into retail and worked at Payless Drugstore, and then I went into the grocery store where I worked until 1996, and that DUI accident that I had in 1976 came back to haunt me big time. I woke up one morning after working like 22 years, hard manual labor jobs. I woke up one morning and couldn't move my neck. And I called work and I told him I, I can't come in and be a grocery checker today because I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't move. And I went to the doctor and within a few months they did some MRIs and, and they told me I had the neck of a 75-year-old woman. I was in my 30s. And they told me that I would uh, need to have surgery on my neck to repair some discs and to repair some severe de some severe damage that had uh, over the 22 years of working it had worn down a, no a normal woman a normal person at 40 years old will start to degenerate you know we this happens to us in old age but because of the injury it happened sooner for me so I had surgery on my neck in 1997 December of 1997 and um, they put a plate in my neck, and they took out three levels of discs 
and they put a metal titanium plate in there. They put cadaver bone in where the discs were taken out. They scraped all the bone spurs off the sides, and I had spinal cord impingement and all kinds of just stuff. And so they did a pretty major surgery, and they put 12 interlocking screws that hold the plate in. And um, I was put on a morphine pump in the hospital after I had that surgery. And uh, when I came home, I was put on pain pills. And that's kind of where the progression of my disease really got bad for me. And um, this is part of my story. And out of respect for Alcoholics Anonymous, drugs are a part of my story. Because I I still continued to drink. I took the pills with the alcohol. I called it my little cocktail. You know, I mixed it. And it was good. You know, I I felt pretty good. You know. (laughs) Very, very good. Yes. Uh, I didn't go back to work. Um, I was lucky at that time. My husband worked. He made enough money that I didn't have to go back to work. My kids were still in school. Um, and I homeschooled one of them at that time, too, which, which worked out pretty good. So I, I did the cocktailing thing till about 2001, but I got a piggyback here, and I have to say this part, and this isn't the pleasant part of my story, but this is what it is. I married my husband in 1982, November, and we got a divorce in 1998. I divorced him because I thought he was the problem. And it was directly related to an alcohol incident over Labor Day weekend at the Antelope Valley Fairgrounds, and we don't really need to go into any of that. But we got divorced, and we got divorced for, we were divorced for about a year and a half, and I saw him change his life. I saw him quit drinking. I saw him quit taking pills. I saw him change his life, lose weight, and, you know, he was good with the kids and you know after that year and a half we started to talk again and we decided to give it another chance so we got married in 2001 again so we've been married 12 years this time and 16 years the first time (laughs) and uh but the 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 progression of my disease got really bad come 2001 they uh the doctors told me that my liver enzymes were really high and that i was going to uh get into serious illness with cirrhosis of the liver so I said I'll just quit drinking that's what I'll do I'll just quit drinking and that's what I did I quit drinking and I didn't even withdraw I didn't skip a beat because I was on all those pain pills and my body didn't know the difference it was still getting the pleasure you know mode going on so it it just didn't know and, and I thought, well, I'm not an alcoholic. You know, I quit drinking on my own. And I, you know, I continued, I continued that pattern, uh, that sobriety of, of not drinking. And I didn't drink for, until 2010. Oh, I didn't, I just, excuse me. I did I quit drinking in 2001 and I haven't drank. And 2010 is when I got into the program. And it was because of the pills for me. Um, I, uh. My sister in 2006 here in Arizona got diagnosed with cancer, and I came out here to Arizona to visit her, and uh, she had asked me at that time, she begged me to get off the pills. They had me on a pill, a medication called OxyContin at that time, and uh, yeah, I graduated from the little Vicodin pills up to the OxyContin, so she begged me to get off of the medication, and 
you know, the disease had progressed so far that I went back to California, and I did not. Not only did I not get off the, the pills, I got on more, and I lost the three years that my sister struggled with cancer. I saw her one time, and I saw her two weeks before she passed away. Um, that's probably one of my greatest regrets of this disease. And in 2010, October, my dad called me, and uh, my dad the one I blamed all those years. He would be the one to call me and begged me to get help. And I don't know what it was that, that made me say yes. I don't know what it was that made me surrender. But I know from 2006 on I had been praying for a way out. You know, I just couldn't see a way out. I couldn't ever imagine waking up a day and not having to put something in my body to make it feel better. You know, I just couldn't imagine that. Um, I didn't know there was any other way. And... Uh, I have a sister up in Washington who's a nurse practitioner. She told me how I'd need to do it. I would need to go into a medical detox, that I couldn't do it on my own. And that's what I did. I made an appointment. I checked myself into uh, a detox, a medical detox in South Pasadena. Um, it was going to be 14 days in the, in the hospital. And I was ambulanced on the, second, on the seventh day to a real hospital, and I was put on life support. So I didn't get the 14 days. I didn't get the 90-day inpatient. And I thought I was going to be well after that. So I, my husband picked me up, brought me home, and it was 10 days. And I knew I had to do something. In the treatment center, there was one meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that was brought there. There was one young man that came in there and told his story and shared his story. So I knew when I got out, I knew I had to call place and find a meeting, which is what I did. And there was a, there was a recovery hall um, right around the corner from our house. It was in a different fellowship. That's where I started because I hadn't drank. I thought that's where I needed to start at. So I, I, went, to, I went to meetings there every day. Um, and about 45 days in, because of uh, a good friend called me to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, I went there. And when they held hands and said the Lord's Prayer, I just, you know, heard the music I'd never heard before. And I knew I was in the right spot. And that's kind of where my recovery started. Um, I got a sponsor about 75 days in, and I started working the steps. And I started working the steps real intensively because for me, when I came into this program, I was 50 years old. I came in with my AARP card, and I joke about that, but it's not funny. You know, um, <laughs> no, it's really not. Um, you know, at this age, um, they, they, I heard those little cliches, if nothing changes, nothing changes. You know, I had to change everything about me. And so I started working the, the steps intensively with my sponsor. We'd get together. It wasn't an hour or a half hour. I called her every day, too. She said, you've got to call me every day for 30 days. It took me 90 days to call her every day for 30 days because I'd forget one day and I'd have to start over again. But I, I started meeting with her, and we'd meet for three hours you know, or more. And she started taking me through the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, page by page. Word by word, words that I didn't understand, I had to underline and circle and write what the word meant above it. She personalized the book to myself too, where it, where where there was wheeze or, you know, that I, there was I, you know, so that I could read that book that I was reading about myself. And that's where I identified really that I was an alcoholic. I identified in Bill's story really a lot, because uh, I had tried over the years, you know, to to stop drinking here and there. I'd have uh, bouts of sobriety. Well, when I was pregnant both times, I had some good sobriety there. But 
never anything, I don't think I ever had 30 days of, of sobriety until 2010 of October. And so I started working the steps real ex- intensively, and I got a, a, a service commitment. I made coffee. And uh, about six months, I found a really good home group in Quartz Hill, California, called The Grange. And that meeting is still there today. I got to meet the person who actually started that meeting. His name's Pat Connor. He still goes to that meeting today. Um, I got a chance to see him in July when I went to California, which was really great. And when I got six months, they invited me to a business meeting. They said, you can uh, be our literature person. We'll let you buy our literature and our chips. You know, I said, okay, I get to do that, okay. And we'll let you help serve the cake on Saturday, okay. And in California, when you got nine months of sobriety, they allowed you to chair a meeting. So that day they nominated me to chair the Tuesday morning meeting. The meeting was at 6.30 a.m. So I went there usually six days a week. I didn't go on Sunday because I went to church on Sunday with my family. And um, I chaired that meeting till I left California and uh, I still kept the cake commitment till I, till I left California, and I also got to go on some committees and plan some roundups out there in Lancaster. I got to go to a couple conventions. I went to some workshops out there. Uh, one of the best workshops I went to was called the Big Book Comes Alive, and they did it in the style of Joe and Charlie. If you're familiar with uh, Joe and Charlie, were a couple of drunks, and I kind of like the way that they did that. They bring a little bit of humor into... Uh, into recovery and and uh, that helped me get through my steps. Those workshops were extremely helpful for me to, to get through my steps. And um, I right before my first year birthday in uh, California, my husband was laid off work, and we had to leave the home that we lived in for 30 years uh, because of the economy and the the type of work that he was in the building industry. We moved out here to Arizona, and we were thinking that work was going to be better out here in Arizona. And uh, Unfortunately, our economy is still in a bit of, of slouch. So, uh, like I say, for the third time in my sobriety, I am moving again, and um, we're still unemployed. And, you know, I'm, I'm here to say that life doesn't always get better when you get sober. It gets hard. It's just how we deal with it today, you know, and... You know, I could sit here and I could cry and I could share with you how heavy my plate is right now with job loss and home loss and this and that. But what I'd like to share with you is how full my cup is today. You know, I have so much gratitude for this, pro- for this program and what it's done for me in my life and how it's changed the dynamics of my family. My relationship with my father my mother, my sisters, my brothers, my husband, and my children. These are tears of joy. Um, They told me when I got here that if I worked the steps, that my life would change. And I said, really, at 50 years old, these 12 steps are going to change my life? And she told me, The first three steps, steps one, two, and three, you get right with God. Steps four, five, and six, I get right with myself. Steps seven, eight, and nine, I get right with others. And steps 10, 11, 12 is where I live today. And I do the same things today that I did when I got here in 2010 of October. 
I generally go to a meeting every day, sometimes two or three meetings a day. I usually hit about 10 or 11 a week. I am of service. I just took a GSR service commitment this year in February, which is interesting. It's the whole different side of AA, the politics. Um, but it's interesting to me. Um, I do chair a meeting. I am a sponsor today. And uh, I try to carry this message. And, you know, God willing, in October next month, I will have three years. And I'm really looking forward to getting a security badge and taking the message into the institutions. Because I did have a lot of... Uh, I've had uh, some experience in treatment centers. However, I've never been in prison, and I, I really was never arrested and went to jail. So I thought, well, you know, how am I going to have a message to take into prison? You know, and one of this nice little lady named Dorothy told me, she says, honey, you need to go there and tell them how not to go to prison. So maybe, you know, maybe there will be a message that I can take in there. And I just like being of service, you know. I can say one thing about service is service has kept me sober. Service has kept me in the circle, and that's where I have to be. I have to be completely in the circle. There's unity, service, and recovery, and unity. I have to go to meetings. I have to be a part of Alcoholics Anonymous and be part of the events that are coming up. And uh, the service, you know, if I keep the service commitments, it keeps me going to the meetings. It lets me go to the assemblies. It lets me find out what our delegate goes to New York and finds out. He comes back and, you know, and, and, and shares these things with us. And then we get to go there and we get to be the voice for our home groups, you know, take, you know, our opinions there. And he takes them to New York. And, and that's interesting to me that, you know, how it, how it all works, the upside down part of the triangle, I guess. But then, and then the recovery, you know, the steps, the steps are it, the principles. Um, you know, I, I, I follow the directions in the book every day. Um, I wake up, I pray, I meditate. I ask God to direct my thinking. I ask him to keep it divorced from self-pity, selfish, self-centered, and dishonest uh, thinking and motives. And I add some more stuff to mine. I ask him to uh, also remove character defects. I say the third step prayer. I say the seventh step prayer. And these are things that my uh, home group meeting did in California. We read those prayers, you know, so I got, I got accustomed to doing that early on. But I, I just can't start my day unless I, unless I pray and meditate. Ask God to direct my day, uh, direct my thinking, to show me what my steps are to be today, God, and give me everything I need to take these steps. And I pray that I would do things that would be pleasing to you, God, and that I would be of help to others today. And today I am. You know, today I am helpful to my family. I, I pick up my sister's kids here in Glendale, Arizona. They, they go to school uh, over off of 75th and, uh, and Northern, and I get to do that today because my sister allows me to put her kids in my car, you know, her grandson too, and it, and it wasn't always like that, you know. Um, when I traveled in a car, I used to always travel with an ice chest, you know, or a sippy cup that was full that wasn't clear, you know, it was, it was a dark color. But, uh, but today, you know, today people do, you know, trust me, and, and who would have ever thought, you know, that I would be the go-to girl or the go-to daughter? You know, my sisters are moving my mother down here from Washington State, and, and she's, she's ill, uh, She's got Alzheimer's, and, um, you know, they're, they're looking to me to help her out, to help them out, you know. And, and like I say, it wasn't always like that. I, my phone didn't ring asking, 
you know, for help. You know, could you help out doing this? Could you help mom out? Could you help me by picking up my kids for school? It wasn't always like that, you know. And I'm doing things today that I, I enjoy doing. Uh, I picked up a pencil and I've started drawing again. And uh, I've started cooking again. I enjoy cooking. You know, I really enjoy kids. So I'm really hoping to take this uh, a little bit farther. I, I have got to work in Neighborhood Impact. I am a life scan uh, through the federal government so I can work with children in the uh, churches and that. And it's been a pleasure to give back, you know, what was given to me. And um, I think I'm going to continue this. You know, I'm going to keep coming back. And thank you for letting me be here tonight, letting me speak. And hopefully you've been able to keep up with me. Mm -hmm.